You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Social Emotional Learning and the Brain by Marilee Springer. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everyone, to the SLP Book Club podcast. Let's get started today with another little round of the game, Show Me You Know Me. So, Adrian, let's see how much you know about me. Okay. <laughs> I think the most annoying type of talker is a close talker, a loud talker, a low talker or mumbler, or the one who can't shut up. Hmm. All of these are annoying in their own special way. (laughs) I'm going to say D, the one who can't shut up. So it's actually the low talker. Mumbler. Yes. I cannot stand when someone talks too quiet and I have to lean lean in and keep asking them to repeat themselves. That's the one that's the hardest for me. The one who can't shut up. (laughs) You just let them go. Yeah. Maybe that was me. Maybe I was projecting. (laughs) Not about myself, but that really bothers me the most, I think. That's the one. Yeah. Plus the mumbler, it sort of starts skirting the line where it can be embarrassing for you, the listener, because after you have to ask, like, say that again? What did you say? Like three times? It's like any more than that. And you're like, wow, we're having a communication breakdown. I know. It's a rough one. 100%. Okay. In emergency situations, I am the type of person that reacts by A, staying calm slash following instructions. B, assuming a leadership role and helping everyone else first. C, looking out for myself and my family first and foremost. Or D, panicking slash losing control. I think that you would be C, looking out for yourself and your family first and foremost. Well, while I would like to say A, B, or C, the truth is D. I am a horrible, (laughs) scary, like emergency situation. I try. I want to be better. But it's like I need somebody else to take control. And even if they tell me what to do. Thankfully, I haven't been in too many scary situations, but I do just kind of freeze. Yeah. I don't love it about myself, but I'm glad I'm not a nurse or something because I don't think that's a good quality to have in those situations. Oh, no. I am the same. I am either a freeze or a flight person. Like if I (laughs) just run away, I'm just out of there. (laughs) You know, in the Seinfeld episode where there's a fire and George just pushes past everyone, knocking down like children and old ladies to get himself (laughs) out of the building. (laughs) That's me. Yes, I'm there. Yikes. Yeah, I'm always amazed at the people who can stay calm. My mom was an ER nurse, so I just can't even imagine. She probably is able to totally stay in control when things come up because of what she's seen, and I inherited none of that. Bless those people. We need them, you know? We need good (laughs) teachers. We talk about it all the time, and we need people who are cool under pressure. Yep. It's just not us. Those are not our gifts. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it. We learned a little bit about each other. And now stay tuned after the break. We'll get into this week's chapter. Do you love free stuff? This month, we'll be giving away a $100 Amazon gift card, plus a copy of next month's book, Take Time for You. 
Self-Care Action Plans for Educators by Dr. Tina Bogren. Trust us, you guys. We're a new podcast and your odds of winning this thing are pretty high. Please help us out and just think of all the amazing things you can get from Amazon. Maybe some self-care things if you want to stick with May's book thing. Some bubble bath? More books? Wine? Did you know you can get wine from Amazon? Listen, we're not here to judge. Here's how to enter. If you love the podcast, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple or Google Podcasts. Then take a screenshot of your review and email it to hello at the slpbookclub.com. If you want extra entries in the drawing, post about an episode you loved on your Instagram stories with a link to the show and make sure to tag at SLP underscore book club. Please don't mention that it's part of a giveaway and only post if you really do love the show. If you have any questions about how to enter, email us at hello at the slpbookclub.com. We've also included all this information in the show notes if you're more of a visual learner. We'll be accepting entries until April 20th. Then we'll draw a winner. Good luck! Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're talking about the book Social Emotional Learning and the Brain today, chapter four, all about self management. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Are you ready to get into this? Yes. <laughs> Lots of good stuff, as always. So, chapter four opens up with the author explaining an exercise that she does with her classes. So, she has the students walk in. And again, Marilee really coming with the zingers to just like start the chapter with a bang, really get your attention. She has a letter in her hand, very dramatic. The students walk in. She's like, I found this letter on the printer and I don't know who it belongs to, but it seems to be written after a bad breakup. And the whole class is like, oh, what? Weird. And then the letter is addressed to S.M., And it just talks about, you know, the person can't get anything accomplished since the other person left and they can't get organized or motivated, can't achieve goals, constantly overreacting to other people's comments. And then it wraps up by begging the other person to come back. And the students are sitting there trying to guess who's SM, you know, Stephen Myers, you know, making all these guesses (laughs) only for Marilee to reveal (laughs) self-management. That's who she's talking about. <laughs> really takes you for a ride. Merrily. <laughs> uh-huh. She had a plan. She always does. Well, self-management is about regulation. So emotions are co-regulated, meaning it's through our relationships that we learn to regulate. Many students have experienced trauma and stress in their lives, so they're dysregulated and therefore unable to control or regulate their responses to certain situations. So if we're going to teach our students to become more aware of their emotions, then we need to help them deal with those emotions and to exercise self-management. There are six components to self-management, and these are impulse control, stress management, self-discipline, self-motivation, goal setting, and organizational skills. So these components are interrelated in many ways. For example, impulse control affects self-discipline and Goal setting requires self-motivation and organizational skills. So students need to learn to regulate their thoughts, emotions, and actions across all the various settings of their day-to-day lives. And then Marilee mentions the famous marshmallow test, which has come up in other books that we've read. So this is where four-year-old preschoolers were each offered a marshmallow and told that the experimenter had to leave the room. If they waited to eat the marshmallow until the experimenter returned, they would 
received two marshmallows. So waiting was pretty hard for some of the kids, obviously, but some did wait for what seemed like a pretty long time and got their reward of two marshmallows. So the children who could wait in order to receive the reward grew up to be more successful and had higher scores on their SATs. And then this study made me feel so sad, and we'll talk about it after, but There was a similar study done in 2012 where 28 preschoolers were divided into two groups. One was called the reliable group and the other was called the unreliable group. So children in the unreliable group were asked to do a project that required coloring and they were given a box of used and broken crayons. The researcher told them that if they could wait just a few minutes, they would get some new crayons to use. But then they came back and apologized and were like, oh, sorry, we didn't have any better crayons for you. You just have to use the broken ones. And then next, they were given a small sticker and told, if you just wait a few minutes, we'll come back with a bigger and a better sticker. And so, you know, the kids waited. And again, the researchers returned and said, oh, sorry, we didn't have any big stickers. And the reliable group had the same setup, but their researcher always returned with what they promised. So when offered one marshmallow with the promise of another, if they just waited for the researcher to return, the children who had received what they were promised were able to wait much longer than the children in the unreliable group. So this just goes to show you in such a sad, heartbreaking way that, you know, we need to be really reliable with our kids. And when we promise them something, we need to stick to it and we need to follow through. It's really important to be reliable with kids or your own children. Well, I found this so fascinating because we've heard the marshmallow test a million times, but I've never heard this second study that was done. Me either. With the reliable and unreliable groups. And to know that impact that you being reliable, being safe for a kid, being able to be trusted, you know, the way that each time someone lets them down, that probably just builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Recently, I was with a client and we were playing Gooey Louie. You know, Gooey Louie with the boogers, the game with the, yeah, boogers. the boogers. Okay. <laughs> so the, the booger that's supposed to be connected to something that pops the brain came out. So we played the whole game and it didn't pop. So then I'm in there trying to fix it. And my oh. client came really close. And then right then it popped right near his face. Like it didn't hit him, but it was really scary. And he was crying. Oh. I was trying to tell scary. him that, you know, I didn't do it on purpose, oh. but... I remember feeling bad for days afterwards, being like, he's never going to trust me, (laughs) you know? Oh, no. And then reading this study made me even more like, he really probably thinks I I can't be trusted. (laughs) Oh, the guilt reinforcer. As Uh. if speech therapists and teachers don't already have enough guilt and whatever going on. Oh, my gosh. Now we have to be like, oh, every time we don't follow through, what are we doing to kids? Reading about this was really, really interesting to me. Me too. There's definitely some wisdom there to take away and apply to your own life. So yeah, it does show that trust matters to children. And if we're asking children to manage their impulses, the context surrounding that experience should be one of protection, trust, and follow through. Another important part of impulse control and self-discipline is the ability to be a good listener. Good listening leads to better understanding of what's being said to you as well as the manner and tone of the person who's talking to you. More favorable reactions occur when the situation is clear. Typical examples of poor impulse control at school are speaking out, interrupting classmates, quitting games, shoving in line, cutting in front of others, jumping up from seats, asking questions about irrelevant topics, and displaying physical impulses and hyperactive behavior. 
So while we as educators can do things to help kids improve their impulse control, like telling them if they wait five minutes to go to the cafeteria, you know, then the lines will be shorter. It's more helpful to try to get to the root of the issue. So one idea to assist with impulse control is to use breathing exercises. One study found that they can help children control their impulses. So you can just Google and find a lot of examples of breathing exercises online. Another idea is to use a feeling thermometer for impulse control. So this is a strategy that works well for children of all ages. If you teach middle school or high school, you can have them fill out a feeling thermometer for a specific situation. And this looks like making a three-column table and have them state what happened in the far left column and in the right column record their thoughts about the situation. Then in the middle column, they can use a marker to fill in an image of a thermometer to indicate how hot their feelings are. And you can use this as an opportunity to remind them to use a breathing technique first to calm down and not say something inappropriate before they've had the time to really reflect. If you work with elementary school kids, you can have a large feeling thermometer at the front of the room where students can come and write their name and feeling next to the place on the thermometer where their feeling lies. Or you can use this as a check-in opportunity or maybe even have individual thermometers on each student's desk where they can mark how they're feeling throughout the day. But having an understanding of what stress is and how your brain responds to it is really important for grasping the huge effect that it has on our lives and also the lives of our students. So many kids have dysregulated stress response systems because they're just dealing with stress so many times any given day. And this could be from having to deal with hunger, abusive caregivers or no caregivers, parents in prison, physical or sexual abuse or any other really scary situation. So being dysregulated means the stress thermostat is broken as a result of repeated and intense use. And this can look like hypervigilance or students who shut down their feelings as a defense against these repeated stressful events. So Laura, I know that you've worked at some schools in some really low socioeconomic areas where there's a lot of crime and disadvantaged students. So do you feel like you ever saw this kind of stress response in your students? Unfortunately, yes. You know, especially with the shutting down. I mean, thinking of one child in particular who we really saw change between about first and Mm -hmm. second grade and his dad was in prison and a lot of other things were going on at home and just really was shutting out myself and our school psychologist was really acting out. Uh, I remember one incident where he lit a trash can on fire. Oh my gosh. You know, just a lot was going on and it was really challenging. And that's not an isolate, you know, there were There were a lot of kids that were struggling with a lot of different things. So I wish that I had had some of this knowledge when I worked at that school. Yeah. But it was my it was my first and second year as a speech therapist. And I was just trying to stay afloat. And I really didn't know how to handle. Luckily, the school psychologist I worked with was fabulous and Um, I'm recognizing a lot of the techniques she used in this book as I read. So those kids did have a lot of support from her and from really great teachers. And but yes, yeah, yes, I did. I'm sad to report. (laughs) Yeah, that's hard. I mean, you know, I wish she had talked a little bit about this in the chapter. And maybe she will as the chapters go on. But you know, I think it's also important to think about self care and holding space for that within ourselves as educators, because it's really hard to be 
in a position where we take on that stress and those feelings and ultimately don't have that much power to help sometimes, you know? Yeah. When trauma and stress go unchecked, they can impede and change brain development. Also, they can affect memory, recall, focus, and impulse control. So there are three kinds of stress. Positive stress occurs when students prepare for some kind of like athletic event or maybe a presentation of some sort. And this is an important part of child development as the brain needs a little bit of stress to allow it to adjust to the ups and downs of life. Tolerable stress is a more pronounced response to a difficult situation, such as the loss of a loved one. It might last for a while, but with help from support and strong relationships, the body can recover. Toxic stress occurs when students face adversity without the help and support of an adult. There are some classroom strategies that we can use to help students handle their stress. One of these is predictability in routines, structures, rituals, and procedures. And this can help students feel safe and under control. So Marilee recommends that you should have 15 to 20 rituals in place by the end of the first week of school in your classroom. So obviously this is for classroom teachers, not really speech pathologists, but I think we could get a lot of inspiration from her ideas. I think she mentioned like 15 to 20 kind of seems like a lot, but when you look at her examples, it's really, they can add up really quickly. So some of her examples of a classroom routine were having a song playing when students arrive in the morning, greeting each student by name as they walk in the door, taking attendance, saying something to their neighbor, and asking who's having hot lunch. So Marilee kind of said that she sells hot lunch like it's the most exciting, fabulous dish she's ever heard of. And she does this to kind of take away the negative connotation for some kids of maybe getting free lunch or having to buy school lunch. And she makes it really inviting and, you know, sound amazing. So I thought that was really sweet. Some other examples of rituals are things you might do for birthdays, music you play, having a hat that a student might wear if they're reading something that they wrote to the class. I thought that was such a cute idea acknowledging when a visitor interrupts the class. So she said that she teaches her students to stand up and applaud because they don't get visitors very often. And I could not help but think how funny that would be as a visitor because <laughs> speech pathologists, you know, when we're in the schools, we're kind of popping in and out to do observations or just talk to a teacher. And I just was really sitting there laughing, imagining the whole class like applauding. And I'm just like, oh, it's just me, you guys. <laughs> I think that, have you ever been in those classes where the teacher does have the whole class acknowledge somebody? They'll go, oh, Miss Geisert's here. Class, say hi to Miss Geisert. And they all turn and they're like, hi, Miss Geisert. Do you have classes like that? <laughs> I don't think I've ever had that happen. <laughs> I've, I've had those teachers where you're like, oh, whoa. <laughs> really fun idea. I love it. And she also talked about class dismissal. So she said that she teaches her students to turn to the person next to them at the end of the day and say, I grew dendrites today. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's true. And then the kids walk away knowing what dendrites are. <laughs> I just pictured all the kids like laughing about it, but also kind of liking it. Do you know what I mean? Where kids are like, Haha, we have to do this thing that Miss S makes us do. Yeah, but it's like <laughs> silly and cute. It's, yeah. It is comforting. You know, those routines are just so comforting. Yeah. You can also use the 90 second rule, which might be the most important rule you ever learn in teaching students. So if we are experiencing stress, we need 90 seconds for the brain and body to cleanse itself. What happens during that 90 seconds is important. Stressors stay with us because we can't let go of the negative emotion. And so therefore it consumes us. 
And this could look like ranting to yourself about how rude a student was or how somebody else was really rude to you. But instead, you could fill those 90 seconds with positive strategies to counteract the stress. A quick formula that she uses that helps is CBS or count, breathe, squeeze. And counting can calm the brain and help us focus on something other than the trigger. Breathing in a structured fashion helps slow the heart rate and combat some of the chemicals coursing through your body. And the final step is to squeeze something like a stress ball or your hands. And I have heard this about the 90 seconds. I think it's just big in therapy right now. You know, that if you're feeling an emotion rather than try to fight it, you can just sit with it. And once you kind of acknowledge it and feel it, then it will just go away with time and you don't end up feeling that feeling for a longer amount of time. Another way to help students handle their stress is to use a calm, neutral, assertive voice. So students can really benefit from us modeling calmness for them. Therapy dogs are also helpful in creating a sense of calm. As I said, I would love to have a therapy dog on campus. Lower levels of stress and anxiety and even increased attendance have been reported when therapy dogs are in schools. And studies show that lower cortisol levels and higher oxytocin levels are present in students who interact with therapy dogs. The author shares that she recently returned to the school she most recently had taught at, and all the kids and parents were talking about Charlie, their new therapy dog. So Charlie was used to calm the teachers, listen to kids read, and de-escalate tense situations. Mindfulness is another strategy that can give students the ability to be fully present and aware of their emotions and behavior at any given time. Awareness of the connection between emotions, thoughts, and bodily sensations can help students to better regulate their emotions. Research shows that when students become more mindful, they have more cognitive flexibility. Many different breathing techniques can be taught as part of this instruction and mindfulness. And some examples are basic breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth slowly, a four by four, also called box breathing, which is inhaling through the nose for a count of four, holding for a count of four, exhaling to a count of four, and then holding again for four counts. You could laminate squares and place them on the student's desks to help guide students through this technique, if you would like. They also brought up cotton ball breathing, where you ask a student to sit so they have no eye contact with anybody else in the room. You give them a cotton ball and have them put it in the palm of their hand, and then have each student breathe in and out slowly for one minute, controlling the cotton ball so that it moves from their palm to their fingertips. Have them notice how their breathing slows down as they control the cotton ball. After a minute, have them slow their breathing down even more so that the cotton ball goes no further than the point at which their palm and fingers meet. Just don't let a speech therapist see you doing it. They might think you're doing non-speech oral motor (laughs) exercises. Which are not evidence-based for the record. (laughs) They also brought up pinwheel breathing where you give students pinwheels and you have them concentrate on their breathing as they learn to control how fast the wheels spin. And this can help them become aware of how slowly they can spin with calm, slow breathing. I think this could be really good for the speech room. If a student is becoming agitated or kind of needs to calm down, you could just have a pinwheel on hand and have them sort of go to a different part of the room and just practice breathing. And I was actually at the 99 cent store just yesterday and they had a lot of pinwheels. So (laughs) by the time you listen to this episode, I don't know if they'll still be there, but. Well, I feel like it's a spring staple. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You can also try a calming station. So this can also be called a calming area or peace place, which I thought was cute. Might have a beanbag chair, some other kind of comfortable place to sit. 
it should just be kind of away from the other students. Maybe there will be some stress balls or pinwheels to help with stress relief and breathing regulation. And it's just a place to give students some space to regroup and refocus. You can also place a calming bottle here, which is just a like a water bottle filled with a combination of water, glue, and glitter. You shake the bottle and then concentrate on watching the glue and glitter settle back down at the bottom. And then I really like the idea of something called TLC, which she recommended for use in high schools. And it consists of a table and chair in the hallway with a sign reading, How Can I Help? And a staff member sits at the table and kids are just free to take a seat at the empty chair and talk or just have a minute to regroup. So I thought that was just like a really nice way to offer support. Yeah. You can also consider an emotion planner for a specific student or maybe even the whole class. So you can use the planner at the beginning of the day if you're in elementary school or in your morning meeting. You can start by informally asking the students how they're feeling Maybe asking questions like, what have you eaten this morning? Or did anybody have an argument so far today? And then the answer to these questions will help you to get a feel for what the day might be like for some of the students. There is an example in the book of a more structured emotion planner if you want to check that out. And now that we have lowered students' stress and taught them strategies for impulse control, we can move on to self-discipline. So self-discipline is just response inhibition. And this probably sounds familiar to anybody who was listening to our last book, Smart But Scattered. This looks like what students do when they're able to choose a certain behavior over another and when we no longer have to discipline them because they're doing what they're supposed to do, even when we aren't watching. A self-disciplined student asks for help when needed, stays on task, listens to directions, gets out materials when needed, comes to class prepared, and turns in assignments on time. One idea to work on self-discipline is a party planning exercise. Planning ahead can be a challenge for a lot of students, and you can help them to develop this skill by having them plan a party. What things will they need? How much money will it cost? Who will attend? How will they let people know about the party? If anybody out there gives the castle a lot, this might remind you of a specific item (laughs) on the pragmatic judgment subtest where it asks the student, you're going to have a party. What do you need to put on the invitation? It's like a four point question. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I I never gave the castle. Oh, I gave it all the time when I worked at the high school. Oh, And so that item, you know, it's like gets lodged in your brain. (laughs) Anyway, another idea to work on self-discipline is a brain break. So many students just need a break sometimes. And this can help mind wandering or daydreaming Brain breaks offer a quick change in what the brain is doing, and they can look like movement that's content related. So if you're talking about the Civil War, maybe you have them stand up and kind of march or movement for fun, like walking around the room and the student's not allowed to sit down until they've touched three silver objects, singing or dancing, merrily coming out with all the fun ideas. You can have a junk bag where students draw from a bag filled with small household items And then they have to think of a new use for the item. (laughs) I'm sure it would be entertaining. Yeah. Uh, You can also have the students walk around the room balancing a book on their head. So we should also consider strategies for teaching self-motivation. One example is a success circle. So some students feel nervous when they have to speak in front of the class or give a book report share a project or answer a question. So a success circle can help as a self-motivator. The author tells her students to imagine a circle on the floor just a step away from them that is this success circle. And then when they step into the circle, they can become a superhero or somebody who really knows a lot, can help others, and talk to them about literary characters, historical figures, or superheroes who have helped others before. 
And then before they step into the circle, you know, they take a deep breath, imagine themselves doing really well, have them step into the circle, put their hands on their hips in the superhero pose and say to themselves, I can do this. And Laura, this made me think of you because I remembered in grad school that you would go to the bathroom and do the superhero pose in the bathroom yeah. stall. We, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I just had to Google it right now. It's from a TED talk called Power Posing. I will never forget you being like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and just like do this hands on my head. That's how I got into grad, <laughs> I got into grad school using power posing. Like when I got there for my interviews where you got interviewed by yes. two faculty, I think I power posed before in the bathroom and then like went in and just destroyed that interview. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it works, people. You heard it here first. Mm -hmm. Another idea for teaching self-motivation is something called a maker space, which I had never heard of. And I thought it was kind of a cool idea. So this is where people with common interests can share knowledge, tools, and resources in a common space. These can be high or low tech, and they enable students to understand the value of self-motivation, self-discipline, and interdependence as they work with others on self-centered creative projects. And when students meet up in these spaces, they can exchange ideas, offer support, and gracefully fail. So these kinds of spaces can also help kids feel less isolated as they work on figuring things out together. So Laura, do you think a maker space is like a space where they have like carpentry tools, maybe a carpenter? <laughs> and like, if you're kind of interested in it, you could just sort of collaborate with some other students. on. Yeah, I didn't some know if it was something like that or just a club, you know. I had a hard time visualizing what this <laughs> looked like. I was picturing like an engineering club where the kids just get together and work on inventions. Inventions. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> a maker's space. I just felt like a maker's space was such a unique title. You know, I didn't know. I don't know either. It's something maybe we have to look it up. So you were just imagining like some odds and ends on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just dump out a little pile of stuff and the kids just sit and tinker around with it. I don't know what it is. I'm keep talking because I'm going to look it up. <laughs> okay. Well, please let us know what you find. There are also some strategies for teaching goal setting and organizational skills. So when students are willing to work toward a goal, they show their ability to focus and persevere. As they encounter roadblocks or distractions and keep working towards their goal, they demonstrate grit. The brain learns with maximum efficiency when it is motivated by goals that are both challenging and achievable. Brains are extra driven if they see the goal as relevant and having value. So you might need to step in and help students break a goal down into a series of step-by-step short-term goals. And they may also need help with prioritizing their goals, as we also learned about in Smart But Scattered. Developing and prioritizing specific measurable goals and a plan to achieve them requires organizational skills. So some questions that students can ask themselves are, what is it that I want to achieve? How will I achieve it? What steps will I take? What will plan B look like if I run into obstacles? When will I achieve my goal? How will I know if I have reached my goal? And maybe even something like, how will I celebrate my accomplishment? Setting personal goals should help your students understand the concept of delayed gratification. And then through this concept, they can be taught at the earliest grade levels. But, you know, this may also need reinforcement all the way up through adolescence. 
So overall, it's just a really good idea to remember that everything we say or do as educators can have a consequence. I feel like we're always coming back to that. And we can balance our students' stress by providing them with safety, empathy, and a loving relationship. We can also make their lives better by helping them to develop self-discipline, self-motivation, and goal setting. Do you want to know more about makerspaces? (laughs) Yeah, please, I do. Okay, so I guess this is a big movement. They have them like on college campuses, MIT, UCLA. It's a room filled with, yeah, tools, machinery, tables. It could be like craft supplies. If you're going to make one at a school, you should ask for donations. You're going to want little machinery parts. And kids can go in with an idea or a goal and they come out with something they made. Oh, makerspace. (laughs) So it's just this kind of like open-ended, go in and make something play around. And yeah, they also say failing is okay. So you might go in with a goal and try to make it and it doesn't work. And that's okay. See, when I was imagining this, I was thinking about like older kids, not necessarily younger elementary kids, but still kind of a cool idea. I had this supervisor when we were in grad school at an elementary school. He would always, if something broke, he would get in there with tools and like have the kids help him fix it. Like if a wind up toy breaks, I'm throwing it in the trash. He'd be opening it up, trying to work the mechanism, (laughs) like (laughs) figuring it all out. And I always thought he was just one of those people who took every little opportunity to learn and teach the kids things and, you know, just throw his lesson plans out the window and Today, we're Mm. fixing this wind-up toy and seeing if we can get it to work. Oh, my gosh. There's probably a lot of really good ways to just embed language in that kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not handy like that. And I could probably save a lot of money if I just tried to fix things instead of replacing Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for Chapter 4 of Social Emotional Learning and the Brain. Next episode, we'll be covering social awareness. So we look forward to you joining us then. And we want to remind you guys to just go ahead and check out our Instagram page at SLP underscore book club. We post great stuff about the books, funny clips from the podcast, and you can see some cool information about like which book is coming up next. So like it, share stuff, let other people know about us, and we appreciate it so much. See you next time. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP Book Club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the slp book club. 